it is a privilege to uh, be with you again. It's uh, been a little while, and uh, uh, I always enjoy uh, our time together. And uh, as was already mentioned, Wayne and uh, Kathy are in uh, Israel right now. And so uh, uh, I'd been giving uh, some thought over the last, uh, well, actually several months uh, in light of some of the things that were already mentioned this morning. Uh, Alan mentioned uh, the 500th anniversary of uh, the Reformation, or what we call the start of the Reformation. Um, Martin Luther, in 1517, October 31st, uh, we understand him to have posted these 95 theses as he was writing against, um, actually not the indulgences of the Church, but the misuse of the indulgences of the Church, at least at that time. Later, he would write against the indulgences themselves, but uh, this document that he wrote um, uh, sort of sparked the beginning of what would become a time uh, of reevaluation in the history of the church, a time when the church would reconsider uh, what it believes and uh, where truth comes from. The, t- the portion of the Reformation w- was about what role does scripture play in the life of the church, and a uh, fascinating time, my undergraduate degree is in history uh, with a major in the Reformation, so it's a period that I've studied uh, a lot about, and uh, um, I, I enjoy the history, but I think more important than just knowing the history uh, is to know biblically what's at stake. And so this morning I want to look at uh, a passage, uh, probably a couple of passages as we, as we look, uh, that has a profound implication on what would eventually become the Reformation. We'll actually talk virtually nothing about the Reformation, um, but we'll talk about this passage and what it came to mean. I, I sometimes make uh, charts and files of, uh, of passages uh, that I've taught or I've not taught or I've thought of t- teaching and so on. Uh, this one comes from a file called Passages that I don't know what they mean. <clears throat> so I want to w- warn you that uh, as we work our way through, I don't know precisely what this passage means, but I think you'll understand more as we, as we work our way through it. We want to go to Matthew chapter 16. I know we uh, are in Matthew as Pastor Chuck is preaching through the book of Matthew. I want to go back to Matthew 16. We're going to look uh, at, at a few different things related to a passage that is quite familiar. You've undoubtedly encountered it before. Um, We'll talk about some of the implications of this passage through church history once we uh, spend some time understanding uh, what's going on. We pick up the story with Matthew, and I want to talk a little bit about how Matthew writes so that you can sort of understand what's going on. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all our gospel writers and are telling the story of Jesus, but they all have different personalities, and they're writing to different audiences, and they have different uh, emphases that they go on. I just want to focus on Matthew at this point. I know with, uh, with Wayne, you guys are in Mark, but uh, Matthew is kind of our Tom Clancy of our four gospel writers. Uh, he, he's a mystery writer, and, and, and he is writing and, and sort of building a story. He is building to a climax, and we're going to actually read part of the climax here in Matthew 16 of something that Matthew is trying to, uh, is trying to do. And, and I do that, and I'll just show you a little bit if we compare it to John. Uh, John 1, 1 in the beginning 
beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. John is not writing a mystery. Okay, John is trying to tell you precisely who God is, uh, or precisely who Christ is, that he's fully God, from verse 1. Matthew is not doing that. Matthew is letting the story unfold, and uh, and we pick up uh, along the story. We're about two years at this point, Matthew 16, into Jesus' ministry. Again, Jesus' ministry is about three years. We say that it's really not written down how long Jesus' ministry was. Um, we get the length of Jesus' ministry, the years that he was with his disciples, by counting his trips to Jerusalem for the yearly festivals. And so usually we lose, use the book of John for that, and we see that he seems to go during his, his years of, uh, of ministry, of, of healing, of uh, teaching his disciples and, and, and teaching the crowds and so on, uh, three trips. So we, we say about three years, um, which seems about right, but we're not precisely sure. This is about two years in. So there's a significant amount that Jesus has already done. If you just think back or, or page back through Matthew, uh, he's, he's done healings. He, he's confronted the Pharisees on multiple occasions. He's done some amazing miracles and so on. And so now we go north. We can pick it up in verse uh, 13, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, first Caesarea Philippi, where they come to. Um, how many have been to Caesarea Philippi? How many already know? Yeah, a lot of you have uh, been way up in the northern part. We're north of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, if you will, Jesus grows up around the Sea of Galilee, and he begins his ministry there, and perception-wise, that's kind of the backwaters, right? Jerusalem is the big capital city, so the area around the Sea of Galilee is is perceived to be not that important. Um, I didn't know whether I should say, like, Arkansas. <laughs> you see, I didn't know, so I, I won't, okay? But but it, that, that idea, the, the back, you know, if you're, whatever, I'm from Canada, doesn't mean anything to me anyway. So... But, but he's not from a particularly, it, it, it's, it's perceived to be the, the, the hill country, the, the, the backwoods, if you will. And he makes his way to Caesarea Philippi, which is even further up north. He's also in a, in a Gentile area. Caesarea Philippi is notorious for a couple of things. One is that it is the place where the, the god Pan is worshipped, P-A-N, Pan. And, uh, and so he's up, probably one of the reasons they go up there is just to get away from from the crowds. Jesus, if you look back in his ministry, he's been with the crowds a lot. And so they leave sort of a Jewish area and go to a more Gentile area uh, where they can think back on, uh, get some, some, some rest. And, and Jesus is going to pose a question here uh, in, in a moment. And so they're up in Caesarea Philippi, which is sort of notorious for this worship of the god Pan. And if you've been there, there's a big sort of a rock face. We're at the foothills of Mount Hermon at this point uh, in the north, and uh, uh, there's this big rock face, and, and what they did in, to worship their gods, these uh, Greek deities, as the case was, uh, they would carve these images into the rock, and then they would build these sort of temple-like structures uh, around the rock or in front of the rock as a place where people could come and worship, and interestingly enough, you could, uh, those who uh, had the rights to the right things would make money from all of that. And, and so the god Pan was worshipped uh, as uh, sort of against this rock 
face, and somewhere in that area, uh, Jesus poses this question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So again, we've been ministering, Jesus has been ministering about two years with his disciples, and it's kind of like, well, what's the word on the street? What are people saying? Uh, what, what's going on with, uh, with um, uh, how people are perceiving who, who I am? He doesn't just, of course, say, you know, who do people say that I am? Uh, He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Which is the most common way that Jesus refers to himself. If you were in the service this morning, we were in uh, the end of Matthew 24 and into Matthew 25, and multiple times Jesus refers to himself the exact same way, Son of Man. And son of man is a phrase that comes from the prophet Daniel. And, and so Daniel is prophetically speaking of someone who is to come. And so it's worth our while to see why Jesus is using that phrase here. Even though I don't think the disciples necessarily understand why he's using it. Jesus questioned, who do people say that the son of man is? And so let's look just briefly for the son of man. Keep your finger in Matthew 16 and make your way to Daniel chapter 7. Uh, Daniel chapter 7. We're going to pick it up mid-prophecy just to get a little glimpse of this term son of man because son of man is actually going to partly answer the question that Jesus is asking, although I don't think the disciples will realize that at this point. Daniel chapter 7, just a couple of verses. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Daniel writes, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. There's the introduction to that term. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days. Another term or another name, in this case for God, he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is ever is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. It's It's this visionary literature that Daniel is writing, this apocalyptic literature here about the Son of Man coming, and obviously it's a scene being presented, and and it's hard to sort of know exactly who the Son of Man is. Clearly, the Son of Man appears as a person, uh, but seems to be quite divine, right? We, we, we can see that even those verses, obviously, we could go on and continue in a study of Daniel. Um, and, and, and yet, we see this authority uh, that, that this Son of Man has. So, the Son of Man is this term that Daniel was prophetically writing about, seeing, and, and, and speaking of, and now Jesus calls himself that term. That term helps us to understand who he actually is, although I don't think the disciples are seeing that. He's called himself that multiple occasions, and, and, and so just so we know, because we have the whole scripture, we know it's a term to refer to Jesus as the Son of God. The Son of Man is, that's what's appearing here in Daniel 13. In my vision at night, I looked down and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming uh, with the clouds of heaven. So he's coming down from heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days. That's God the Father and was led into his presence. And so we have the Son of God in the very presence of God. Um, and, and, and we have this, this idea of everlasting dominion and will not pass away in the kingdom and so on. And so this term that Jesus is using 
using is helping people understand who he actually is, although it's probably not helping. It had just come to be recognized this is how Jesus talks about himself. So, back to Matthew 16. He's asking the question, two years into the ministry, give or take, uh, he's asking the question, what is going on? What are people saying uh, about me? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, and that would be the disciples. Um, Some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Interesting sort of replies. These are the types of things that are being said about Jesus. Maybe he's John the Baptist. You remember John the Baptist has kind of an interesting role. He's the one who announces that the Christ is coming and he prepares the way or he, 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 he uh, heralds the message to prepare the way, uh, make ready uh, for the coming of the Messiah. And of course, ultimately he is beheaded. And so some are seeing somehow Jesus is... Uh, a second coming of, of John the Baptist, maybe. Uh, uh, others saying uh, Elijah. You'll remember Elijah, of course, uh, gets taken up <clears throat> uh, to heaven uh, in, in a... Uh, in a um yeah, a chariot of fire in a whirlwind, a chariot of fire. That's the word I was uh, looking for. Thank you. And, uh, and so maybe this is Elijah who's come back down again. So, so I just want to kind of put this into perspective so you see we have an interesting thing. The word on the street about Jesus, they have a very high view of him being possibly a prophet. Maybe he's John the Baptist. Maybe he's Elijah. Maybe Jeremiah. Maybe one of the prophets. It's a very high view of him. The problem with their view is it's much too low. Okay, this is going to be the interesting thing. So we just got to kind of think about this. Um, a prophet is simply someone who speaks for God. A prophet speaks for God. So if we go back to the Old Testament, uh, when God had a message, he would raise up a prophet, and the prophet would proclaim that message. Sometimes that message was about the immediate circumstances, and sometimes the message was about future circumstances. And so we tend to think of prophecy as about the future, and often it involved that, but not always, and a prophet simply speaks for God. So when God speaks... Most times it was written down. I say that because we have all sorts of prophets like Daniel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Micah and so on and so forth, and we have their prophecies written down. We don't, however, have a book like Elijah. Elijah's a prophet, but we didn't write Elijah. We have some of Elijah's prophecies written down in other books, but... Elijah doesn't have a book. Elisha doesn't have a book. Remember the prophet Nathan who confronts Daniel, uh, David um, excuse me, uh, after his sin with Bathsheba? He's confronted with the prophet Nathan, but we don't have a book of Nathan, right? So we have lots of the prophets were writing prophets. They were written down. Some of the prophets weren't. Elijah wasn't. Elisha wasn't. Nathan wasn't, and so on. So when God spoke, we had, we had uh, he would raise up prophets who, who would convey that message, and most times it was actually written down. Well, we have this interesting gap in our Bibles between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's some 400 years in there where we have no books of the Bible. It ends with Micah. In our Bible, we turn the... I'm sorry, it ends with Malachi. Excuse me. It ends with Malachi. It should Don't end with Micah. Okay, there's more after that. Uh, end with Malachi. You turn the page and, and it gets to Matthew. And in our Bibles, it's generally like one page. It might say the New Testament or maybe uh, it'll say the intertestamental period or the time between the Testament or maybe even the silent years. Um, But there's some 400 years that elapse between Malachi and Matthew, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the 
reason there's silent years is because God is silent. He doesn't raise up any prophets. So for 400, it's actually about 430 years, Israel has not, if you will, heard from God. Now, they've heard from God in the sense that much of God's messages have already been recorded, Genesis to Malachi, but they're hearing nothing new from God. God is silent. And so there are no prophets. So to think that Jesus is a prophet after some 400 years of silence is already an amazing attribution to Jesus. Now, it's John the Baptist, who's already mentioned, who breaks that silence. He is a prophet from God. And so we don't hear from God after Malachi until... John the Baptist. And so for the people to think of Jesus as a prophet, you got to remember prophets were at this point uncommon. Old Testament, quite common, right? You have prophets and many of their lives overlap. And so you have multiple prophets living at once and so on and so forth. But by the time you get to the New Testament, it had been 400 and almost 30 years from the last prophet. So if you just think about that for ourselves, 430 years ago, for us, I mean, we just don't think in those kinds of terms, right? So for the people on the street to be thinking Jesus is a prophet is amazing. They're not used to having prophets, and yet clearly Jesus was so special. Maybe he's John the Baptist. Maybe he's a prophet like Elijah, or maybe he is Elijah, or, or Jeremiah, or one of the others. So they have a very high view of his ministry so far. That's the word on the street. At least that's what the disciples are reporting, Okay. But the problem is they don't have a high enough view of Jesus. You see the problem? He he is a prophet. He does speak for God, but he is God. He's the son of God. He he is fully God. And so it's a high view, but not a high enough view. And so uh, then Jesus says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? So he turns to his disciples. Now, these are the ones who have been following him and and being with him for these, you know, somewhere around two years of ministry. And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, in the book of Matthew, that is the first time Jesus has been identified as the Messiah. Matthew's been writing 16 chapters to get to this point where Jesus is identified as Messiah. Book of John, verse 1. Okay, John can't wait. He's not into the whole building tension or anything. He's the Messiah. I'm going to say it in verse 1. He says it again in verse 2, verse 3, and so on and so forth. But Matthew is building his story for his audience. And, and we come to this confession. You are not merely Elijah. You are not merely Jeremiah or one of the prophets. You're not even John the Baptist. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, important that we understand a little bit about the word and what it means. The word Messiah literally means the anointed one. So if we think back to the Old Testament, who do we picture when we think of someone getting anointed? I think often the two faces that come to mind would be Saul is anointed by Samuel to be Israel's first king. And then later David, you remember the whole story with David, that Samuel comes to Jesse to anoint one of his sons. Jesse brings all his sons and Samuel says, well, no, the the Lord hasn't said, no, 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 no. Do you not have any more sons? And Jesse's like, I don't think so. Uh, Oh, I do. There is the other one. Yeah, remember then David comes and he gets anointed as king. So the idea of anointing one is the idea of setting them apart, in this case for kingship. So uh, uh, Simon Peter answered, you are Messiah, meaning the Christ, the anointed one, you're the king. 
You're the king. Well, let's just think about this for a moment. Who's the king of Israel right now? Well, tricky question. There is no king. Well, who used to be the king? Well, they haven't had a king. Well, they actually haven't had a king since they went into exile from Babylon, which was back the third wave. Babylon comes three times to take people out of, out of Judah, and the third wave is in 586. So they really haven't had a king. Their last king is sort of taken to Babylon in, in 586. They haven't, they haven't had a king. But they've had a promise of a king, right? The prophets talk of a coming king. Uh, Moses mentions that there will be a king who comes. Uh, uh, Daniel is, I'm sorry, David is promised that there will be a a king on the throne from his line for all time, and yet there isn't a king. And now Simon Peter answers, you're the Messiah. You're the one anointed with oil, meaning you're the coming king. You're the son of the living God. So Peter's answer is much higher than the word on the street. The word on the street is amazingly high to think of Jesus as a prophet when they haven't seen prophets regularly other than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist's prophecy, in all honesty, is very, very brief. He announces the coming Messiah and, and, and he's beheaded. And so, and so Peter announces, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God. Jesus replies, bl- replied, <clears throat> blessed are you, Simon, uh, son of Jonah, or some of your translations will say bar Jonah, a reference to, to uh, Simon's uh, dad, kind of a, a full way of, of uh, referring to him. Um, which is sort of tricky because Simon's dad's name is John. John and Jonah, if you're playing in the Aramaic and Greek, it looks like maybe he used the name Jonah as maybe a short form for John. Not exactly sure. It isn't completely clear there. But Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, uh, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Finally, Peter gets it right. I mean, he's made so many mistakes, if you're reading Matthew, about getting things wrong. He finally gets something right, and then Jesus says, yeah, but you you didn't figure that out. My father had to tell you who I was. And it's actually true. Peter didn't figure it out, but Peter was told, and so Jesus is saying that this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, by people, by by figuring it out, uh, but by my Father in heaven. My Father has revealed to you who I am, that I am the anointed one, the Messiah. I am the Son of God. I am the coming King, if you will. And then Jesus makes the statements, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. That is the introduction of the church in the New Testament. That's the first time the word church appears. We don't have anything before that. This is how it begins. You are Peter and on this. Okay, but there it says Area Philippi and in the back of Caesarea Philippi is this big rock escarpment where you, you know the word panic in English, the word panic? We get that from the god of Pan, who is the god of chaos. So they worshipped in Caesarea Philippi the, the god Pan, the Greek god Pan, who is the god of chaos, where we get the English word panic from. Uh, they worship him against this rock escarpment, which would have been in the vicinity there somewhere, wherever they happen to be sitting and, and, and teaching as he's talking with his disciples. And, and, and Jesus says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. 
You may or may not know that there's a lot of interpretations here of this passage that uh, have come about through church history. Uh, My view is let's just kind of read it and see what it seems to say, and that's pretty safe as a starting point. Um, There's a couple of interesting things going on here. Um, uh, Peter in uh, Greek, uh, this Matthew would have been written in Greek, and Peter in, in Greek is uh, uh, Petros, and, 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 and really means kind of like stone or pebble, uh, the idea of a, a, a stone or pebble, and, and, and so, and you are Petros, and on this Petra, Petra is this, is this immovable foundation, okay? You are Petra. Uh, Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. And and so in some ways, it's a contrast between Peter's name, which notice, first he calls him Simon Peter, kind of his full name in verse 16, and now blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Now he's sort of emphasizing his name here. Now he ties his name back to his, his father, and now he says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So Peter's name here has even been sort of highlighted three different ways, and now uh, on this... You, you are Peter, this small pebble or stone, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And so some of the question is, well, so what's the rock? Is the church built on, on Peter, or is it built on Peter's statement? And it would be interesting if it's Peter's statement, because Peter didn't even come up with Peter's statement. The father gave Peter the statement, right? He didn't come up with it on his own. And, and, and so both are, are, are possible. Um, if it's Peter, if we just kind of think about Peter and his ministry just for a moment, and all of this will sort of come to bear because the church is going to make some decisions as to what this means, and then we're going to walk a little bit through church history, and we're going to see some of the results of of the decisions. <clears throat> Um, if you think of the life of Peter, when Jesus, his sort of three years of ministry, Peter makes a lot of mistakes, right? He's kind of the leader of the disciples. He's an outspoken disciple. He's very, very close to Jesus. He's part of that, if you will, the inner three, Peter, James, and John are kind of the three closest uh, disciples to Jesus. And, and obviously, Peter is one of those. Um, we see him make a lot of mistakes. Of course, he's notorious for his denial of Christ. First, he is the only disciple who says, hey, even if if you go to death, uh, I'll go to death. Uh, I'll go to the cross with you as well. Then he denies Jesus three times, and obviously that's highlighted in the Gospels. And then, of course, later uh, Jesus will, after his resurrection, will restore Peter three times. Then you remember, ultimately, Jesus will ascend to the right hand of the Father, and ten days later, the Holy Spirit comes. And we find ourselves in Acts chapter 2. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples, who does the preaching? Well, it's Peter. And what is the message of Peter in Acts chapter 2? And even more than that, what is the message of Peter from that time on? Once the Spirit comes, once Jesus has risen from the grave, once he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, once the Holy Spirit has come, essentially Peter's entire life is this. He's a one-way sign that points to Jesus. If you go back and you revisit Acts chapter 2 and Peter's message, Peter's message is... A little bit of the history of Israel, a little bit of how uh, we killed Christ, the, the Jews killed Christ, and yet he's the Messiah. And so even if the church was going to be built on Peter, which, which maybe this passage is saying, Peter's message is, it's all about him. 
As a matter of fact, this whole passage is about this unbelievable revelation that we're now identifying who Jesus is. He wasn't just a teacher. He wasn't just a rabbi. Lots of rabbis around, lots of teachers. Jesus is more than a teacher. He wasn't just a prophet. He is speaking for God. He, he is a prophet in that sense, but he's more than a prophet. You're Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. You're the son of God. And, and so all of this is kind of packaged, and the grammar here is some, well, is it about Peter? Is the church built on Peter? Is it built on the confession? And, and I'm not precisely sure uh, that there's some room uh, in the way it's uh, written uh, either way. Either way, I think it points to the exact same thing. It still just points to it being built on Christ. Uh, then Jesus says, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Well, sometimes we, we miss sort of what's, what's going on here. Uh, gates are used for two things, right? Gates are used for two things. They either keep people in or they keep people out. Make sense, right? You put up a gate, you're going to keep people in or you're going to keep people out one way or the other. Okay, so what I want to figure out is what's moving and what's standing still in light of the gates of Hades here. So Jesus says, I will build my church. He doesn't say Peter will build it. Even if it's being built on Peter, Jesus is still the one doing the work. I will build my church, Jesus says, and that would be Jesus the Messiah, right? He's just been identified. Jesus the Messiah, the son of the living God, will build my church and the gates of Hades will not be able to overcome it. So we start to get a little bit of the Later, maybe we'll get it a little, little clearer when Paul writes Ephesians chapter 6 about spiritual warfare. But, but what we see is the gates of Hades uh, are not able to withstand the building of the church. So it is the church that is being built. It is the church that's moving. And it's the gates of Hades that are trying to stop it. And they won't be able to. In other words, the gates of Hades would represent our world, which wants to stop the message. And Jesus' message is, I'm building it. The gates of Hades will not be able to hold back the church. The church will penetrate the darkness that the gates of Hades is trying to protect. Verse 19, and I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And I have no idea what that means. <laughs> I will give to you the keys to the, okay, the you. So if you was singular, that would be to Peter. If you is plural, he's talking to the disciples at this point. That would be the disciples, right? The you is plural. Okay, so it would be, I guess, the disciples. So I will give to you, Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. The gates of Hades are going to try and stop it. Won't be able to. The church will go forward uh, throughout the world. I'll give to you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so the kingdom of heaven, uh, the, the kingdom of heaven, that's kind of this divine rule. That's kind of a theme going through the book of Matthew. Uh, you, you remember that when Jesus begins his ministry in Matthew in chapter 4, you remember he's baptized, he's, he's taken out by the Spirit, he's led into the desert, he's there some 40 days fasting and praying, he's tempted by Satan, he overcomes the temptation three times, and then Jesus, and then it says from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of of heaven is near, or repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so his whole message is about the kingdom of heaven, this idea of, of Jesus ruling, Jesus' uh, divine authorship and divine ruling and so on. And, and, and so now uh, he's giving the keys to the kingdom of heaven, to the divine rule, to, to, to the disciples? Is, is that what it's saying? 
whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. Did anyone bind anything this week? Or, or, or loose something? When we think of binding something in prayer, what often comes up if we talk about binding something in prayer? We can answer. It's, it's okay to answer, right? What, what do we think of? Yeah, often we think of people who might pray that Satan would be bound. Can we bind Satan? First of all, will Satan be bound? Yeah, he will be bound. You read Revelation chapter 18, it'll be Jesus who ultimately will bind Satan. Uh, I don't think we can bind Satan. The odd thing is, if we could, how can he keep getting unbound? That we then have to rebind him, you know what I mean? And, and, and I don't, it just, it, it's a... I, I don't think we can bind him. I don't think that's what this is saying. Satan, First uh, Peter will talk about, he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he, whom he, whom he may devour. So, so I don't think it's that, but what does it mean to bind and to loose? <clears throat> if you think about where the church goes, at the close of the New Testament, you have all these places, uh, both Jewish places and Gentile places, where these gathering of believers have, have begun. You remember Paul, the missionary, has been planting churches, and so we have churches now in places like Ephesus and Corinth and Colossae and, and Thessalonica, and there's a church in Rome. Of course, there's a church in Jerusalem, but the church in Jerusalem has been uh, facing persecution and has scattered for the most part, and, and so on. And then when the New Testament closes, you have these bodies of believers that have been scattered around the Roman Empire. You have a very interesting phenomenon in the Roman Empire. One thing that the Roman Empire does is it allows anyone to worship anything they want. Okay? Freedom of worship. That's how the Roman Empire works. Worship anyone you want, as long as at the end of the day you can say, Caesar is Lord. And, and so the Christians have trouble with that last phrase there. They tend to say it wrong. They say, Jesus is Lord. And no, no, it's Caesar is Lord. And no, no, it's Jesus is Lord. There, there's a conflict there. And, and the Romans uh, uh, worship and allow for the worship of a pantheon of gods, hundreds of gods, thousands of gods. And, and the Christians, well, we only worship the one true God. So there's kind of a mathematical rounding error that goes on in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire goes, look, if you're only going to worship one god, I mean, there's thousands of gods. If you're only going to claim one, it's the same as claiming none. You're atheists. You don't worship the gods. And so it is only the Christians that are going to receive this persecution from the Roman Empire, because the Roman Empire really doesn't care who you worship. You can worship anyone or anything you want to worship. But yet Christians claim that there is only one true God and that it is Jesus who is Lord. And as a result, the Romans say they're atheists. I mean, they don't believe in the gods. And they're right in that sense. Christians don't believe in the gods. And if that's your definition of atheism, then... They are a form of atheists. They believe and worship in the one true God. So the church undergoes a tremendous amount of persecution. There's 10 Roman emperors who are all involved in persecuting the uh, believers, and, and it ebbs and flows. Sometimes it's a little better, sometimes it's a little worse. Some of it is horrific and, and, and unbelievable uh, as to what uh, believers have to uh, go through as a testament of their faith. And yet we get eventually to Constantine in... Um, well, first 318 and ultimately 325. So roughly 325 years after Jesus was born, uh, give or take, uh, Constantine has this 
I'm just going to call it a religious experience. I'm not precisely sure what he saw in the clouds and, and what that all meant, but he comes to embrace Christianity, and, and first he legalizes it, which was the first time in the Roman Empire that it had been made legal, and then ultimately Constantine's son comes to power, and uh, after Constantine, he's known as Constantine II, which doesn't help, um, but nonetheless, he comes to power, and he then makes it illegal not to be a Christian. Okay, so in the course of one generation, one and a half generations, everyone's a Christian. Okay, so let's just think of how this works. Let's assume I had the power. Let's assume that here in Texas, I had the power to say Monday morning, tomorrow morning, 7 a.m., you're a Christian or you'll be put to death here in Texas, that I had that power. I know it's crazy. Just go with me for a moment. Let's say I had that power. Tomorrow morning, 7 a.m., either you're a Christian or you'll be put to death. Okay. So at 7 a.m., there's obviously a few who will say, well, no, I'm not, and they would be put to death. But everyone else would be Christian, right? Everyone else, yeah, we're Christian. Which would mean what at that point? Nothing, right? Being Christian, once everyone legally must be Christian, being Christian no longer has meaning, Right? I mean, if everyone's a Christian, there's nothing defining about Christianness. If you're born, if you're baptized on the eighth day in the Roman Empire, you're a Christian. By law, everyone was a Christian. And, and, and so the church faces a new problem, which is how can we identify the Christians amongst all the Christians? Right? You can't ask. All the real Christians raise your hand. Everyone raise their hand. Okay, well, and, and so the church goes through a tremendous struggle to try and, and find its, its purpose and its place. Because the church is baptizing everyone, the church has these incredible records of people, governments, secular governments who want to tax people and get money, well, they should probably get their records from the church. That would be the best place to get them. And so you have the beginning of the blurring of secular authority and sacred authority. And, and, and because everyone's Christian and really the church runs the empire, well, no, not the church, the, the emperor runs the empire. And so you have the blurring of, 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 of the issue of authority between secular and sacred. And the church, over a period of about almost a thousand years, comes to read this passage this way. Matthew 16, verse 19, chapter 16, verse 19. I will give to you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. They were given to Peter and to the disciples. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loosed on earth would be loosed in heaven. What Jesus is doing is giving the church the ability to understand and prescribe who's in and who's out. Jesus gave the keys to the disciples. In turn, the disciples will hand the keys over in each next generation to those who follow in the disciples' footsteps. Primarily, that's going to become Peter as the, as the, as the lead pastor of Rome. Eventually, we'll use the Latin word for papa and we'll use the word pope. And, and, and the, the Pope will be the successor to Peter or the successor to Peter's successor or the successor to Peter's successor who was the previous successor and so on and so forth. And we call this this apostolic succession, the, the succession of apostles from Peter on through the day. They pass the keys to the kingdom around and the church will determine who receives the grace of God. Turn to Matthew 26, just briefly. Same book, Matthew 26, Jesus at the Last Supper. Pick it up in verse 26. 
<clears throat> Matthew 26 at the Last Supper uh, is recording. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. And then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Notice what he said again, verse 28, chapter 26, verse 28. This is Jesus speaking. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The blood is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus will uh, call and, and Paul will reiterate the fact that we are called to do this in remembrance of me, that we are called to, to, to take the bread and to drink the wine uh, in remembrance of, of Christ. And Christ is the one who said, uh, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And so what we have through the first thousand years of church history is the beginning of rival factions between the spiritual leaders and the secular leaders. The secular leaders will ultimately have armies and weapons of war. And the spiritual leaders will have bread and wine. And it will come to understand the idea that without the bread... And without the wine, there is no forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness is the bread and is the wine. It'll come to mean that when the person stands at the front, they touch the bread and they touch the wine and no one else gets to. Because they have the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And this takes on an interesting role by the time we get to the year 1077. So that's roughly a thousand years ago from today. That's roughly a thousand years after Jesus, the year 1077 AD. You have two major uh, players at this point. You have Hildebrandt, uh, who is the Pope. You know that Popes always take on a different name. I guess if your name is Hildebrandt, you go with Gregory VII. Okay? So we'll call him Gregory VII. His real name's Hildebrandt. He's the Pope. Okay? He, he lives in Rome, uh, where he serves as the ecclesiastical authority, the authority of the church, okay? Uh, you, you remember, or you might not remember, but the, the Roman Empire eventually will divide into east and west, and on the western side, it'll sort of uh, fall apart and disintegrate by 476. So really, there is no western Roman Empire after 476 until Christmas Day of the year 800. You might know the name Charlemagne or Charles V will, well, it's an interesting scene on Christmas Day of 800, he, he is about to receive from the Pope this crown of this new creation called the Holy Roman uh, Empire, or that he will become the Holy Roman Emperor. It's always easy. I say this every time. Uh, if you study history, it's why I studied it. It's always very easy. Holy Roman Empire, not holy, not Roman, and not an empire. Very, very simple. Okay? It's like, how long was the 30 years war, right? It's 42 years. It's not that hard. You just got to know, okay? And so uh, uh, the Pope is about to coronate on Christmas Day of the year 800, Charlemagne as the new Holy Roman Emperor. And at the last second, he grabs the crown from the Pope and puts it on him himself. Meaning what? Meaning you don't have the authority to crown me. I am over you. But the Pope says, no, no, no. I am over you. And so you have this tension between the Holy Roman Empire and the Holy Roman Emperor 
and the Pope. And in 1077, the Holy Roman Emperor, his name is Henry IV. And Gregory VII, the Pope, and Henry IV, the Emperor, have this... Well, you remember Simon in the book of Acts? Remember Simon? Anyone remember what Simon did as a profession? Simon, he, he's a little bit of an outcast in the book of Acts. Simon was a... Anyone remember? Sorcerer, yeah. Simon was a sorcerer, and he wanted to buy the Holy Spirit. Just give me the price. I, just, I want that power. What does it cost? And so the practice of simony is a little play on the words in the book of Acts, uh, where it was the idea that you could buy a religious office. And this was a great way for a Holy Roman Emperor to make money. So if you could imagine it here in Frisco, just uh, briefly here, that uh, when Stonebriar would say, well, we need a pastor for our church, then the mayor of Frisco would come and would say, well, who, who's interested in pastoring Stonebriar? And someone comes forward and says, well, ha, I got a thousand bucks. I'm kind of interested. And someone else says, well, I got 5,000. All of a sudden the mayor is seeing, wow, I could kind and that's how religious offices were being decided, by people bidding on them, which was a great way to make money. And if you're going to run an empire, money is always helpful. And so Pope Gregory VII accuses Henry IV of simony. And this makes Henry mad. And he gets his army, and he wants to go after the pope. And there's a battle that begins in 1073, and it goes back and forth between these two. And I won't get into all the details. We don't have time for them. But by 1077, uh, uh, Henry realizes that the pope has the upper hand because the pope issues an interdiction. It's the first interdiction ever, uh, ever issued, and because I don't know what an interdiction is, so the, but this is the first one, so I guess this is what it is. Uh, but the pope says an interdiction, and he says, uh, we uh, of the church, the priests and the, the magistrates, the cardinals, the pope of the church, will no longer offer communion to the empire. We won't offer it. Because Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for you for many for the forgiveness of your sins. You will no longer have access to forgiveness. The Holy Roman Emperor's got an army. Pope's got bread and wine. Holy Roman Empire can kill anyone they want. The Pope can send them to hell. And so you have this standoff. The Pope is at a, uh, uh, on his way to a, to a, a winter uh, chalet in France. He's leaving from, from Italy, from Rome, uh, over to France. He's in northern uh, uh, Italy at this point. And so Henry comes with his wife and with his child to beg the Pope's forgiveness. And they meet up in northern Italy at a castle where the Pope is staying as he's on his way to go to this, uh, this winter chalet. And for three days, he lets the Holy Roman Emperor and his wife and his child in the middle of a snowstorm stand at the door and knock. For three days, will, will you grant us communion? Will, will you forgive our sins? After three days, the Pope's point was made. Here's the Pope. Here's the Holy Roman Emperor. Between 1077 and 1517, when Luther will pen his 95 theses, the most powerful men ever to rule the world, far more powerful 
than anyone with nuclear threat. See, with nuclear weapons, you can kill someone, but popes could send them to hell. And you have the most powerful men in the world. So it's perceived between 1077, Pope Gregory VII, and Martin Luther in 1517. For 500 years, you have people who think they can wield the sword of salvation because Jesus gives the keys to the kingdom of heaven. It's interesting sometimes <clears throat> we tend to think that, that you know, we read the Bible and you kind of what I think it means should be the right thing and then someone else might think something different and, and that's all fine. It actually doesn't work that way. I, I don't think the church got it right. You can't, well, the church doesn't control who's saved and who isn't. And that's one of the things that Martin Luther recognized was that the church had become this place of authority and power based on the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus never fully explains that, what the keys to the kingdom of heaven are. It seems probably it's more to do with certain situations than people where the keys to the kingdom of heaven, the apostles will help the church to decide in certain contexts issues of right and wrong and, and, and what's appropriate for believers to do and what's not appropriate. That, that's probably more of what it meant. But what it was understood to mean by some, and, and, and really this is a thousand years of building, what it was understood to mean was that we decide who's in and who's out. You receive forgiveness by the bread and by the blood, and if we withhold it, you can't get it. And Pope Gregory VII essentially attempted for three days to condemn the entire Holy Roman Emperor, the Holy Roman Empire, to hell. That was his goal, to show that he had the power. And so all that to, to talk about, when we think about the Reformation and some of the things that are going on, it's this return back to what does the text mean? What does it mean? Not what did it come to mean. What it came to mean was something that became very, very destructive. And long before Luther, there were people like Jan Hus and, 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 and Wycliffe and, and, and people uh, uh, worried and concerned about the state of the church and the abuses of power that had gone on. And it's the same issue today. We have the same situations and, and so on. And so what guides us and what keeps us on the straight and narrow is the exaltation of the word and the continual return to understanding what does the text say? And what does the text mean? Father, we pray that as we think about that this week, that uh, we, we would marvel the fact that we have Bibles in our hands and that we have multiple copies and versions, that we have them uh, on our electronic devices, that your word is easily accessible. For that's very foreign in church history. Most people never had access to your word, either because it was written by hand or because they couldn't even read. And yet you've given us your word, and as a result, we become responsible, responsible to you on how we read it and how we think about it and how we come to understand it. We're thankful, Father, for the proclamation that Peter made when the Father revealed it to him that, Jesus, that you are the Messiah. You're our Messiah. You're our King. You are the Son of God. You did die on the cross to forgive our sins, and you do give us new life. And so, Father, we're grateful. Father, we pray that we would be reminded to be students of your word, 
to study carefully, to think carefully about what you're saying, to compare one passage with another to make sure we are on the straight and narrow. And Father, help us to live out that truth in a world that's lost its way, in a world that needs to receive the forgiveness that you offer. We pray these things in your blessing on each one here this morning in Christ's precious name. Amen. God bless you.